Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 105. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today on the podcast, another special guest, one of my personal heroes, one of the OG American Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts. We've got Dr. Valerie Valhalla Worthington. Val, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you too? <laughs> Not bad. Does it annoy you every time I call you one of the OG black belts? <laughs> It's, it's, it's not annoying that you call me that it's annoying that it's accurate at this point. <laughs> it's funny. I, I remember when I started jujitsu, my instructor would kept talking about this Valhalla person. And at this, at that point in time, I was just like, I didn't know anything about jujitsu when I started. I just kind of did like some base research and found out, oh, I think this would be the martial art that I like. And my instructor kept going on about Valhalla, this Valhalla, that. So eventually I looked you up and it's cool that we actually get a chance to talk here today and for our listeners if this conversation winds up sounding somewhat rehearsed well it's probably because this is the second attempt at trying this we had some technical difficulties the first time so we'll do our best to repeat what we already said because we had a pretty awesome chat the first time and hopefully we can duplicate the magic fingers crossed <laughs> yeah so val i mean i know who you are matt knows who you are i think probably most of our listeners know who you are but just in case why don't you give everyone a quick introduction? Sure. You're, you're too kind. I don't expect that everybody would know who I am. My name is Valerie Worthington. I have a background in educational psychology, which is where the doctor comes from. And I found jujitsu in my late 20s, so 1998. Uh, for those of you doing the math, that means I'm 50. And I started jujitsu because I was looking for a way to keep in shape while I was in graduate school. And as it does for many people, jujitsu became sort of a guiding principle for me. It became something that I built my life around. And I have been training since 98. I haven't been training much this year because of the pandemic, but um, I live in Philadelphia after having um, lived kind of all over the place for in the States for jujitsu. Uh, I did a road trip in 2006 when I decided to just chuck the rest of my life and drive around and train. And I wrote a book about my adventures. And in the recent past, I've written for various um, publications, a, pl a publication called Breaking Muscle, a publication um, that's part of the Inverted Gear website. Uh, about jujitsu, about my experiences in jujitsu. I competed for a while. I'm basically retired now. 
Um, and I live and train and teach in Philly, which is maybe an hour from where I grew up. So after having been a traveler for a while, I am basically back home. Well, let me ask you a question, because this is something that I I have heard repeatedly. You know, there's something about jujitsu that just gets people to abandon whatever walk of life they came from and just do jujitsu full time. And you you hear the story all over the place about how, you know, jujitsu saved my life. It's just interesting how people will have no intent of being a professional martial artist. They'll be doing something completely different with their lives. And then one day they'll try jujitsu and like a year later, they've given up totally everything. <laughs> and, and now all they do is jujitsu. I mean, it's actually an interesting thing because I don't think you see that. I might be wrong, but I don't think you see that much in other martial arts. I've never really heard of anyone who was doing a completely different career and tried Aikido. And then after a year, they gave up everything they were doing to do Aikido full time. It's really something that is particularly unique about jujitsu. I'm wondering as someone who's done this, do you have any insight as to what it is about jujitsu, what that property is that convinces people to do this? I can certainly speak to that for my own life. What happened with me was that I had um, over the course of my life, so I should preface this by saying that I'm incredibly fortunate in my life. I have a loving family. I've had all kinds of amazing opportunities and I was sort of told from the get-go that I could do and be anything that I wanted to. But what happens is that you make choices in your life. You, um, you make decisions about your education. You make decisions professionally. And what had happened with me is that I found myself uh, going along a professional path that it turns out didn't fit me very well. So when I found jujitsu, what happened for me was that it was something that really fit me for whatever reason. I found myself very uh, just entranced by it. I loved it. I loved training. I loved um, I loved that I wasn't good at it and wanted to get better. And so when I when I considered the aspects of my life that did fit me, the jujitsu aspects compared to the aspects of my life that weren't fitting me at that point, the professional aspects. The, the difference and the distinction became almost painful where it was painful for me to um, have to do a job that I didn't like um, and to be in a profession that wasn't fitting me when it was evident to me because of jujitsu that I was capable of having so much greater joy in my life. So for me, eventually, the difference between the two eventually became untenable and I had to do something drastic. I don't necessarily recommend it, but I, but that's what ended up happening with me. Yeah, that's, I can totally agree with that. You know, I've mentioned on the podcast many times about how I had a previous career. I was a chef and basically when I found jujitsu, it was like a, an organic gravitational pull in the other direction. I was, I was getting some I don't want to say a reputation because I don't think that's accurate, but like within the kitchen I was in, I was basically, you know, starting to really make my way through the ranks uh, at a hotel downtown. And then I, you know, after I found jujitsu, I just, I couldn't help but like just find myself thinking about jujitsu all day. And it's funny how jujitsu kind of does that to people where, you know, I don't think it does this to everyone, but to many people, jujitsu is extremely addictive for the reasons you explained, you know, feeling like it's something that you suck at and you just want to get better at it. And it seems to be a good fit for whatever reason, even if you're not good at it, something is telling you, okay, like this is something that you should be pursuing. And uh, yeah, I think that's a super cool story where you just basically started traveling around and training 
and making jujitsu your life. I can definitely relate to that for sure. Best decision I ever made. Well, I, I hope that uh, I hope that people still get the benefit of your cooking, but I totally I totally get it. The thing that I wanted to say also that I wanted to add was that for me, jujitsu was unlike anything else I had ever tried before. It was a physical challenge. It was a mental and a psychological challenge. Um, it was a challenge for me sometimes even to just go um, go into the gym because I was so intimidated. So I think there was that aspect of it as well, that it was completely different from anything else I'd ever tried. And it was also all encompassing. So for me, that was another very compelling aspect to it. Yeah. Yeah. Something that I've said before is that jujitsu is a vehicle for personal growth. I think that's actually probably the best thing about it. You know, people get into it because they want to learn self-defense or something like that. But what you realize pretty quickly is that the actual jujitsu is just the tip of the iceberg to the things that you can learn on the mats. And I know that sounds like total BS, but I mean, anyone who gets to black belt and has been around for a while will attest to this, (laughs) that you start jujitsu just thinking of it as this physical activity, but you realize at the end of the day that it's kind of like a compass that you can use to steer a lot of different aspects of your life. And that's actually something that we wanted your expertise on. And the reason why we wanted to have you on the podcast so badly is because you're someone who actually is an expert in the field of coaching. Now, Matt and I, way back in the early days of this podcast, we had identified coaching as an important topic to cover. So we did an episode on that a long time ago, but based really just on our own personal experience. So it's awesome that we've got you on here because we were hoping to have someone on who could actually really tell us, you know, with a with a some degree of scientific basis, how coaching actually works and how it applies to jiu-jitsu. And maybe to even talk about how you can use jiu-jitsu as a vehicle to grow in other ways beyond just the time that you spend on the mats. So I guess my first question for you, Val, is when we say coaching, I mean, in the world of jiu-jitsu, that has a very specific meaning, right? But I know that in the if we look at things in a broader lens, coaching is a much bigger field Could you maybe talk a little bit about what coaching actually is and what it means to you? Sure. So what you're talking about is the distinction between athletic coaching and what historically and variously has been known as life coaching, professional coaching, executive coaching, etc. And as context for why I do know a little something about about the the latter type of coaching, um, when I was doing the athletic coaching for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I would have students come and talk to me after class who would want to talk with me about things that had really basically nothing to do with jujitsu itself, with technique. But to the point that you were making earlier, they had to do with the more hidden part of the iceberg. The um, What does my engagement in this jujitsu practice mean for the rest of my life, for the kind of person I want to be, et cetera, et cetera. And I first wanted to do no harm. So um, one of the things that um, the two of you and I have talked about offline is the danger, at least I think the danger of imbuing any sort of anybody with expertise in things that they don't have expertise in. So when people were coming to me for life advice, my first thought was, well, I don't have expertise in your life. I don't know how to guide you. And so I started to investigate coaching as a way first to do no harm. And the thing that's interesting about professional coaching is that you don't give advice. You don't sit in judgment. You actually don't ask why questions, but you do listen to people. You bear witness to the the questions that they have. 
and you ask them questions to help them get at their own inner advice giver. So my my tagline, if I have one, is that I want to help everybody take their own good advice. So when it comes to using coaching in this way, in terms of jujitsu, I think it comes back to giving each person or, or honoring each person's autonomy. Different people are in jujitsu for different reasons. As I was coming up through the ranks, I know I saw a lot of people saying, well, you should do jujitsu this way. You should compete. You should quit your job and train full time. You should, um, you know, take this class, that class, you should eat this diet, that diet. And that is, I think that way lies danger. And that way is a place where people who really shouldn't be having a say then get to have a say in your life. So if I am, if I have my coaching hat on, my first questions are going to be along the lines of what, what are your priorities? What are you valuing? And what are the resources that you have available to help you meet your own goals as opposed to what I think you should be doing? That's a really, really awesome way to explain it. And I think this is an area where jujitsu is still very much in its infancy. And probably over the years, we'll see it develop more along the lines of other sports. But one thing that I know about jujitsu is a lot of the time, you know, we'll identify that there was a need for something and we'll just kind of wing it, right? I mean, I think that most people would agree that the kind of teaching practices and the coaching practices that you see in jujitsu, they're usually not based on science or best practice, really. They're usually based on what's worked well for an individual people basically patterning behavior that they've seen. So maybe they're doing something because it worked for them or they're doing something because they saw their coach do it. So it's very kind of tribal in the way that knowledge gets passed down. And I think that really speaks to the infancy of the sports. Um, Coaching is a great example, both the physical and the mental aspects of coaching, where, like you said, a lot of the time, you know, coaches not really having a cohesive game plan or a cohesive understanding of really how to do it, they'll just give advice, right? They'll just say things that worked for them. They'll tell people to do what worked for them, which is why I think you get so many people trying to funnel people into one direction of jujitsu that maybe they don't even want to go into. It's interesting because if you look at a lot of other sports, they take a much more scientific aspect to the way that they coach people, both on the physical and the mental level. I mean, when we had Travis Stevens on the podcast talking about judo coaching, he was talking about how he you know, went to a sports psychologist. Similar, it sounded to me anyway, to what GSP did after his loss to Matt Sarah. And that kind of expertise, bringing in that expertise is something you often don't see in jujitsu so much where we still kind of just wing it. Um, So I think that that's a really, really good point, which is that coaching, again, the point should be first do no harm. And a big part of that is making sure that you're not just being overly prescriptive when you tell people what to do. Yeah. In just over my 10 years, what, 12 years of doing jujitsu now, I've seen, uh, I've been a part of a few different clubs. And of course I have my own club and I've seen all different types of teaching methodologies from the beginning. I've been in gyms where we warm up with rolling and then we ask questions and then we go back and we roll again. I've been in gyms where we do like a a brutal 40 minute warm up of calisthenics and then you start to get into drilling and then there's like 20 minutes of live rolling left. And as an instructor, I guess you're your teaching model kind of evolves over time as you find, uh, at least my, my philosophy with it is, is when you find a method that works at the highest level, or you see the best teams employing a certain training style, 
or if you know you think about it and logically it makes sense to train a particular way instead of maybe a way you've been doing for years um, I think the best thing that we can do in jujitsu and in life is to use what works and I, I've changed the way that I teach classes many many times over the years nowadays I take more of a I, I don't know if scientific is the word to take it but more of a more of a route that I think implants better understanding of how jujitsu works and where the students can actually create the live reactions that they need. So we're doing a lot more live training, not necessarily full rolling, but things like fuck your jujitsu and target sparring and things like that. Uh, for example, you know, when I used to teach takedowns, an average class might look like, okay, we're just going to we're going to do like two minutes each of shots and sprawls. Okay, so then we get those out of the way. Everyone's breathing heavily. Everyone's getting a good workout. But we're not really talking about the concepts of of when you're going to employ your double leg or why it's a smart move to maybe think about a different technique a, a, instead of a blast double or the, the actual concepts or strategies behind the double. And now when I teach takedowns, it's not so much like, okay, we're going to rep, we're going to do uh, – you know, 50 Uchikomi of Sayanagi. And then we're going to get really good, good at Sayanagi because we're doing it so many times and we're getting this great workout in. But now I realize like, okay, well, if we're going to teach Sayanagi, it's not just doing uh, as many reps as we can on a, on a non-resisting opponent. We have to talk about stances, you know, uh, Kenkiatsu, Ayatsu stances. What is my opponent's stance in relation to mine? How am I going to get my grips? What is, you know, let's focus on the grip and engagement rather than just practicing, say, an Agi a hundred times. If I don't, I used to do that when I went to judo, but nobody explained to me the ideas of Ayatsu versus Kenkiatsu stances. Nobody explained to me control hand versus power hand concepts when we're gripping and why, you know, how do I gain the advantage when I have a, a mirrored stance? How do I gain the advantage when I have a a match stance. And now I, I'm trying to study more of the the conceptual theory behind judo as opposed to, okay, we're just going to get a, a crazy war, a warm up. Then we're going to get as many reps as we can. Then we're going to start to throw each other in randori. It just, it just, you'll never throw anyone if you don't understand the, uh, the concepts and the principles behind it. So listening to you talk is making me recognize the fact or what, what I'm perceiving as the the idea, the phenomenon that both of these types of coaching are going on simultaneously. So for instance, when I'm teaching a technique, I'm not going to ask the student, you know, what, what are your values around this technique? In the same way that I'm going to ask a student, what are your values or what are your priorities around jujitsu writ large? But what you're talking about, and in, in terms of uh, giving the you know, the, the context around a move, it's, it's just the more information, the better. And the more you can equip people with the tools that they need to make the decisions that are right for them, whether in the moment or um, in their lives. But what's interesting is that I'm curious to see what it'll look like in the future when maybe people have a better sense of these different types of coaching where there's athletic coaching. And sometimes, you know what, you just put your, you put your hip where your hip goes um, it's not a, it's not a value judgment or a decision that you need to make based on what you believe in your life, but maybe the way that you train or the, the reasons that you train are going to be more linked to those kinds of situations and questions and conversations that have more to do with what I described as life or, um, professional or executive coaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and I think where it gets dangerous is when 
coaches fail to understand that there is a line there. And sometimes they cross back and forth across that line in ways that probably aren't actually beneficial to their students. I mean, you get so so focused on giving this prescriptive advice when you're showing techniques, you know, do this, do that, step one, step two, step three. Sometimes when a student asks a question that kind of blurs outside of that and goes more into, you know, like a philosophical bent, (laughs) sometimes coaches just keep to that prescriptive method. And like you said, you know, probably the best thing for the coach to do in that case is to bear witness and to listen. But often that's not what happens. The coach just keeps going and keeps providing advice that honestly, maybe they're not the best person to provide that advice. I mean, I've, I've seen coaches who in one breath will explain to you how to do an arm bar and then they'll talk about like how to invest <laughs> and then they'll go back to like explaining leg locks or something, right? They just kind of interweave all of this advice, but it's all given through the lens of do this, do that, do this, do that. And they don't realize that different types of coaching require a different approach. In some cases, your job is just to communicate instructions In other cases, your job is to basically be an ideator, right? And to help the person get to where they need to go on their own. And I think that where you get a degree of danger is where coaches kind of cross that line. And this is something that, you know, I'm very passionate about, especially in jujitsu, which is that all martial arts are fundamentally a little bit culty. Actually, jujitsu is probably better than most. But the thing is, even if jujitsu is a more scientific art in some ways, it still does wind up being a little bit on the culty side where there's sort of a a cult of personality around a lot of instructors. Wearing a black belt just comes with a degree of visual authority that people will defer to. So I think that when you are the coach, you have to understand the weight that that position holds and realize that when you say something, people will often follow that without really thinking. And so it's important for you to make sure that you distinguish with your students when it's time for them to listen and follow steps versus when it's time for them to think for themselves. We had John Thomas on the podcast a while ago, and he was talking about this and how one of the things that he finds really harmful that a lot of coaches do is they will issue these edicts, these principles that must be followed. And his message was that when you speak like that, you basically get students to turn their brain off. That's not a good thing necessarily when you're talking about even just the physical aspect of jujitsu. But when you start getting into psychology and you're trying to help people in ways beyond just learning a technique, that's at the point where I agree with John that it can start to get a little bit dangerous because I mean, the one thing that that I can attest to is, man, it's like the day that you get your black belt, (laughs) suddenly people treat you with a lot more reverence than they did when you were a four stripe brown. Yeah, you're definitely right about that. Uh, When you do get your black belt, for whatever reason, people just start calling you like professor. And for me being a gym owner, you know, I was a I got my brown belt the day that I opened my school and then a few years later got my black belt. And it was like a crazy shift had occurred in the amount of people that were coming in and just the amount of respect you're getting and literally nothing changed. You just, you get, uh, you get promoted. And for some reason that, that makes all the difference, but you're definitely right about how, uh, you know, as, as John Thomas was saying about how, um, we, some people tend to teach these concepts or whatever as hard, fast principles, and it can, it can stunt people's growth. It can, it can create situations where there's rigidity in people's understanding of jujitsu, where, 
professor said that this this rule, you know, you don't cross your ankles when you're on someone's back because of the ankle lock or whatever. And we, we see at the highest levels that these rules are broken. Uh, and it's because people are at such a high level that, you know, what it's like that saying, I don't even know if I'm saying this right, but if, if you have to, you know, you have to be able to to have the knowledge to be able to break the rules. Right. And I, I remember when I was just starting to teach as a purple belt and I, I can re- recall on a few times when I did say rules in class, I, I used some of these rules and I was like, you know, don't do this or, or I shouldn't do this. Right. And it's like, and now it's funny. Now I, years later, I realize how little I knew and I was essentially underqualified to be giving such rigid advice. And now I kind of keep an open mind for everything. Now I have almost the, uh, the polar opposite opinion where if someone asks me, okay, like, should I do this shows? I'm like, yeah, I mean, if it works, then you should do it. Right. (laughs) There's no, I, I try to avoid these hard rules. Now there's, I think there's only very few rules in jujitsu that are tried and true. And most of them pertain to the, the idea of, you know, solid body positioning and alignment. But other than that, I try to steer clear of these uh, hard, fast rules because, you know, you spoon feed people these rules and then they become habits over time and then they manifest in rules and you can see them make these mistakes. Whereas if you sort of teach people to have an open mind and you explain to them how grappling works and then you leave it as an open-ended book so that they can actually make decisions for themselves, I think that's a that's a much more productive way to go because instead of setting boundaries and, and rules, you're essentially teaching people how to think for themselves. I, this is This is all very fascinating and I have three thoughts and I'm saying it this way so that I remember them and that I'm concise. The first one is uh, in my group of friends who are upper belts in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, our joke is always, well, you're not a black belt in everything. And it's a joke, but it's also a good reminder that, you know what, we all need to be checking ourselves and making sure that we understand the limits of our expertise, the limits of understand our boundaries and what it is and is not appropriate for us to stick our noses in on. And, and so it's a, it's like I said, it's a joke, but it's also a pretty useful joke. The second thing I wanted to say is along those lines, we have, I think, a disconnect between the philosophy that we're taught and that we often spout, which is leave your ego at the door and the things that we actually see on the mat. And so it's really difficult to be someone who is supposed to be in a position of power and expertise and then say, you know what? I honestly don't know the answer to that technique question there is someone in the room who's better at it than I am. This is something I don't do very often. It's really difficult when you're the person that people come to for answers for you to model, for me to model, for any of us to model to other people that that sometimes we're not going to know the answer to to a question in a sea that's as big as jujitsu, we're bound to we're bound to not know everything. But we're sort of damned if we do, damned if we don't, because of this idea that we leave our egos at the door. But I don't know how good any of us really is at it. And then the third thing I wanted to say is that one of the things I do in my other life is teach graduate level courses. Uh, for a couple different universities. One of the courses that I am just finishing up is a, is a course in um, research methods. So these are students who are brand new to research, who are just learning the tools and language of research. And one of the things that I'm trying to teach them is that it's okay for them to question to question the, uh, the, the practices that we have, not because they're trying to be difficult, but because 
they can understand them better that way. And if they come across an instructor or an expert, quote unquote, who doesn't know the answers to the question of why we do things a certain way, well, that could potentially be an issue. And it comes back to this question of cultiness. Why do we do things this way? Well, we just do things this way because this is always the way they've been done. But if that's your answer to the question of why we do things, that's, in my opinion, whether it's in research or in jujitsu or in life, that's not a good enough answer. Mm-hmm. I, I really like uh, your second example where you talked about, you know, you're not a black belt and everything and uh, how you should leave your ego at the door. This is sort of something that I used back when I was cooking. You know, a lot of the time when you're when you're in a kitchen, it's very high pressure, high stress situation. There's, you know, a mistake you make at the at the beginning of the day can bite you in the ass later on or just one slip up in your your organization and uh it could have dire consequences and as a result you look like a complete idiot in front of your peers so uh a lot of the motivation to be successful and to be efficient is to not look like an idiot and it's important uh in situations like that when you do make a mistake that you don't shift blame and instead practice, you know, extreme ownership and and really say, okay, like this was a mistake that I'm responsible for. I'm going to help rectify it. And then at the end, you know, you deep, you sort of debrief on it and think about how you can, you know, be more successful next time. And it involves being able to say, hey, I made this mistake. I, th- this was my responsibility and I failed. And people respect you a hell of a lot more doing that than if you tiptoe around the the issue, you make excuses, you blame someone else. And I, I sort of take that into my my school as well. You know, like I'm I'm about 165 pounds. I'm not a big guy. There are guys in my gym, like I have a 215 pound purple belt who really gives me a hard time and sometimes he beats me in rolls. I have a I have another 220 pound blue belt who is like a beast to roll with, you know, and this, I know it's a matter of time before these guys just because of the sheer size and athleticism, like they're going to enough time put in, they're going to they're going to be able to take it to me and they're going to have questions for me. All my students will have questions for me which one day I I'm not going to have the answer to. So I think it's really important for me anyways, as a, as the head instructor to sort of establish to everyone that like this belt around my waist, like it's, it's a, it's a measure of time and effort that I've put in, but it doesn't make me um, some sort of special entity or anything like that. I'm, I'm just a person. I, I like everyone. I don't have the answers. I will get submitted. I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to be vulnerable with everyone and sort of say, Hey, like, you guys need to leave your ego at the door. And in doing so, being able to admit when maybe you made a mistake or maybe when you were doing something that wasn't the best way, or maybe you don't know everything. I think that that is an attitude that gets you a lot of respect because it shows vulnerability and it shows to everyone, hey, like I'm just a human like you. And what I've noticed is it kind of trickles down into the culture of the school and uh, you, you end up having people train under you that don't have these crazy egos. They don't need to win every role and, and uh, they don't, they don't need to have that superiority over anyone. You mentioned you were talking at first about um, making mistakes. And one of the things that I had wanted to um, underscore is it isn't just about making mistakes. It's about not knowing something. And you, you mentioned that later and 
The thing for me, I'm always all about the action items, right? So I think people have this conversation all the time about people who want to be uh, conscientious and caring and effective instructors have this discussion all the time about how do I how do I truly leave my ego at the door? How do I um, match my words and my actions? And that's a conversation I would love to see people at our level having, um, where there's sort of an exchange of ideas and an exchange of things people have actually done to humble themselves or to acknowledge, you know what, I really didn't know the answer to that question. Or yeah, you know, that guy cleaned the floor with me and I had nothing for him. And to really share those kinds of discussions, not only for ideas, but so that all of us can kind of bear witness for each other that yeah, we're all really, we're trying to do this and it's hard and it's hard to do in the moment, but you know, we could all learn from each other in that way, in the same ways that we do technically. Yeah. It's funny. One of the things that I've noticed in my career is that one of the, the easiest ways to stall your career growth is to refuse to admit that there are limitations to your knowledge. There are people who just act like they know everything. They refuse to say, I don't know. They always try to come up with an answer even when they don't actually know the answer. This kind of stuff is really transparent to everyone around you, you know, and ultimately at the end of the day, not only is it going to impact your reputation because people are going to learn that you don't know everything, but also it stymies your own growth because if you think you know everything, then you're not leaving your mind open to new possibilities. And I think that this is something that affects everyone, but in jujitsu, you see this especially where, you know, it, it makes sense, right? You, someone puts a black belt on you and then you're sitting in front of a class of 30 people and they're asking you questions. There's a lot of tremendous pressure for you to have the answer. Your ego and your identity are caught up in the fact that you're this black belt. And especially if you're a new black belt, sometimes the feeling is that, well, I expect that I should know everything. But the one thing that I've learned <laughs> as I've gotten more advanced in the art is that actually... Having a black belt does not mean you know everything. It means that you accept and know the limitations of your knowledge. And when you talk to anyone who's really an expert in their field, you'll notice that they don't talk like other people, right? They will always be very, very doubting about their limitations of their knowledge. I mean, a good example of this, if you're a listener to this podcast, we did a two-parter on conflict mindset with Sergeant Major Seb Lavoie. And Matt kept trying to dig <laughs> at, at Seb and ask him for like this like silver bullet self-defense strategy. Like, what would you do in this situation? What would you do in this situation? And Seb's answer was always, I can't really answer that. It, it, it depends, right? And when you get to the point where you really understand how something works, then you understand how deep the rabbit hole goes in that no one person really is likely to have the knowledge to just answer things off the cuff, right? It's much more a sign of expertise when people are willing to flat out say, I don't know the answer to that. Just wanted to make a comment because uh, <laughs> that podcast with Seb was awesome. The one, the one on self-defense, uh, I know he was he didn't want to give like specific advice on scenarios. And I think part of it is because he is very much, he's hyper-focused and he's very much a perfectionist in everything he does. He likes things orderly and uh, organized. And if things aren't in a very specific situation, I think he was kind of hesitant to give out advice on on what to do because he, he was, he literally just didn't want to be wrong, right? And he wanted to be as accurate as he possibly can. You know, this is a guy where after we're done recording, he's like, oh, fuck, was that okay? Like, was that, did, you know, 
I want, I want Steve to make sure that this was okay before we put it out. Like you guys make sure. And, and just, uh, we're like, dude, it was awesome. You're, you're being a perfectionist and whatever. But I will say that recently I've been uh, studying Danaher's feet to floor instructional. And the last two chapters on feet to floor are self-defense chapters. And it's fucking awesome. I, I really recommend that people check it out. It's actually one of, it's one of the only self-defense instructionals I've seen that is clearly stuff that works. You can use it right away and it, it applies really well to competition jujitsu as well. It's very bread and butter, you know, how to, how to hold your body positioning in a way that is de-escalating yet prepared. And, uh, you know, the, the tactics that he employs to to go against a, an attacker are just really fantastic. So on a side note, as we're mentioning Seb and the episode we did with him, I really recommend that guys check out Feet to Floor. If, and especially if you're into self-defense or, or you want some ideas how you can apply your grappling training in a self-defense scenario, definitely check out Feet to Floor. It's really good. Well, what you're saying there with Seb, though, is a perfect example of what we're talking about, where he doesn't want to communicate incorrect information. And he says that because he knows the limits of his knowledge. You know, if he were a guy who just kind of thought of himself as a tough guy but didn't have any experience, he'd probably be a lot more likely to prescribe to you exactly what you should do in every situation. But because of his fieldwork, he knows that it's not that simple. And I would say he knows what can go wrong if you tell someone to do something without really knowing the context you don't want to close their mind to the fact that situations are complicated so much like john thomas it's a situation where he understood the nuance and didn't want to communicate something out that people would then you know take as the answer 100 percent of the time there's a mental model that's referred to as the map is not the territory and what that means is that when you prescribe people like a, a model or a solution to a problem it's important to understand that no model is going to be 100% accurate 100% of the time, right? Like if I give you a map, for example, um, you know, it's not going to be 100% accurate, uh, a representation of what's actually of, of the territory that it actually represents. If it were 100% accurate, it wouldn't be a map anymore. It would be the, the actual territory. The whole point of making things like mental models is you're abstracting and you're simplifying so that you can look for patterns easier. But you're also losing some detail in that process. So sometimes things don't apply 100% of the time. You know, you, you can take these ideas and these guidelines and apply them. But it's also important to have the mental flexibility to know that a lot of the things that we think of as rules, some of them are not really rules. They're just guidance. And a big part of getting more experienced in jujitsu or really in anything is understanding when the guidance can be broken. I agree. And I was going to, I was going to echo that by saying that this is, this is why it can be a challenge sometimes when people are trying to learn uh, a very complex knowledge domain like jujitsu or like research, because you're brand new, you want something to cling to that is going to be true all the time. And it's not usually that way. So it's challenging when you're trying to develop not only an understanding of the terrain, but also the habits of mind that you need in order to effectively navigate that terrain. So that's why it just can, you can just feel so lost when you're, when you're a white belt and just go, all right, just tell me one thing that's true all the time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. I remember, you know, when I was a white belt, like with many white belts, I was given some rules to follow. You know, one of the things that I was taught was 
If someone gets mount on you, you know, put your hands up to your neck, you know, basically don't extend your arms, keep your hands up to your neck so that you can't be choked. Something that my instructor calls the home alone defense, right? You bring your hands up like Macaulay Culkin. And I remember one time I was sparring with my instructor and he mounts me and I was, I think a purple belt at the time. And I do that home alone defense. And he just looks at me and says, Steve, what are you doing? And I said, I'm doing what every instructor has taught me to do. And he said, well, yeah, that's that's a good advice for white belts who don't know anything, right? You know, we teach them that because we don't want them to stick their hands up in the air like a moron. But when you get more advanced, you have to learn that you can't just sit here forever in the home alone defense when someone's mounted on you. You need to have an escape strategy. And that was when I started to realize that a lot of these things that we think of as rules are actually guidance. And it's important to be able to tell the difference. I mean, there are some things that are rules, right? As as far as we can tell, relativity is a rule, but a lot of the things that we take as rules are actually not rules. They're just standards of behavior that are intended to bring about some best practices, but they're not the only answer 100% of the time. Like Matt, you brought up that great example earlier about crossing your ankles, something that most people are taught from white belt never to do, but that's actually bad guidance because once you become aware of the risks of the, the ankle lock and once you become aware of point limitations from doing that, it's actually a very effective strategy. So it's another example of where when you tell people something with no room to wiggle, then they might misinterpret the message. Yeah, I, you were you were talking. One of the things that I had wanted to say was when when you were talking about, you know, for instance, putting your doing the home alone when you're in um, when someone is mounted on you. What I wanted to say was that is an example. It's not a rule necessarily. It's an example of a way that you can address a, a, an underlying principle. So I think that's where um, where we can get stuck sometimes. And I remember one time very clearly I was teaching, um, can't remember exactly what I was teaching, but it had to do with the underhook. And I said to people who were in the class, the purpose of getting the underhook is not to get the underhook. The purpose of getting the underhook is to keep your partner from taking your back. Getting the underhook is one way you can do this. And then I sort of talked about some of these other ways and you could see sort of the blown minds because a lot of people had never thought about, well, why am I getting this underhook? And so the underhook is one example of a way that you can, as you said, perform a best practice, which is to prevent your partner from taking your back. Well, let me ask a question here for you, Val, because I want to maybe provide some practical guidance to people out there who are in the boat that we've been in, where you know you get your black belt or maybe not even that far, but you are in a, a coaching role and you're being asked to provide a degree of guidance. Are there any best practices or standards or just good habits that you've learned that you can suggest that will help people kind of, you know, keep their ego off the mats and keep their head out of the cloud so that they can be more effective in this role? Very good question. And as I think I tend to answer most things, I can tell you the things that I have tried. So the question is how we can how we can sort of model humility and model being a lifelong learner. Is that is that sort of the what we're getting at? Yeah, basically, how can you avoid this pitfall of steering students in the wrong direction? Because, you know, you have this innate desire to look like you know everything. How can you bring about some of the best practices from the world of coaching 
and maybe help instructors use those practices to be more effective in their roles? So it's probably very complex and probably very simple. I think one of the things that I always try to do is whenever I'm giving a best practice, quote unquote, I'll say that it's a best practice for me. Here are the things that I've tried that are test that are tested for me. Um, these are the things that work well for me, and here's why. I and then I'll always suggest that other that students contact other instructors to find out what their best practices are in this particular arena. So you know maybe maybe someone really enjoys pressure passing because that's effective for them, and someone else really enjoys more athletic sort of acrobatic types of passing. And this is my particular preference. This is why it works for me. This is why I'm drawn to it. And here's an example of someone who does things in a different way, who might be able to help you in that regard. So one of the things I guess to kind of extrapolate from that and back out is to be very clear in my own mind of what I'm comfortable with, what I consider myself to be somewhat of an expert on, or at least to be somewhat knowledgeable on, um, and where there are holes in my game. And then when you're talking about, and, and so I'm talking specifically about technique and about jujitsu strategy, because as soon as it gets to anything like, I'm having trouble in my marriage, you know, my boss doesn't understand those kinds of things that I'm immediately not giving any sort of advice. That's when I go into sort of bear witness mode and what sorts of supports do you have? What sorts of supports do you need? So I, I should have started by saying, you know, when it comes to anything that's outside of the realm of jujitsu, I'm immediately not an expert at all. If someone does come to me for something that I happen to be an expert in, let's say I'm an attorney and I also teach jujitsu, well, then there's the problem of the potential dual relationship, in which case I would suggest that everybody sort of use the guidelines from their own professions and their own their own experience. But if we're talking about anything not related to jujitsu, then I'm, then I'm immediately considering myself not an expert. If we're talking more about how to show humility on the mat, when it comes to the things that I do and don't know, I think that's where self-awareness comes into play. And also just a willingness to, to say, you know what, I don't know the answer to that. Why don't we go together and talk to so-and-so and see what they have to say? So I'm kind of talking around the points that I'm trying to make, but hopefully they're coming coming across, figuring out what the, what the kind of hard line is, the boundary is in terms of what it's appropriate for you ever to comment on and to give advice on. Stick to those areas. And then if there are places where you don't know the answer, don't make something up like you were saying, you know, say, here's what's worked for me, or that's a good question. You know, who could help us answer that question is X person. I think it really what you're describing it, a lot of it comes back around to what we were talking about earlier about ego and just being vulnerable and being honest with your guys and just saying, hey, I don't know everything. I think maybe there's more that we can look into this or let me get back to you if you don't have the answers. I, I totally agree. You You can make advice based on your best opinion, but you can also say, this is something that I need to revisit. It's something that I, you know, I, I don't really have the best answer for you. You know, I've, I've shown a technique before and I have some pretty decent blue belts. And after one of them came up and is like, Hey, don't you think, uh, don't you think this would work? And we try it and I'm like, all right, let's come in. Like we got to talk about this solution that was just presented by, you know, the, one of my blue belts, because I like to be able to have that environment that fosters 
personal growth and development where you can have blue belts questioning the black belt. It's not a, an insult thing. It's more just an open discussion thing. And if, you know, if I had the attitude of, I'm the professor, how dare you, you know, question me, then it's going to stifle a lot of, first of all, it creates an unpleasant environment, a dry environment where I don't think the best growth can happen, but it stifles discussions and it, and it makes it so that I'm this person who can't be questioned. And that's just not, it's not really fun for anyone. And I I don't find it particularly productive either. Um, Another thing about egos is, you know, I have, I have people drop into my gym you know, there's one individual in particular, he's, he's high ranked, but he comes from a background of, we do a lot of leg locks at our school and we follow, you know, obviously Rob's instruction and, you know, the Dan Hurt death squad stuff, you know, anything that I see in competition, I immediately try and research it and bring it back to the gym because I, you know, I realize the game is constantly changing and I get these people sometimes drop into my gym who are high ranked, but don't have a great understanding of leg locks, or they'll come from a background like a catch wrestling background or a Sambo background where they fancy themselves, you know, high level leg lockers. And then they come in and when they roll with some of my lower ranked guys, like some of my blue belts will just leg lock them all day. Uh, and it's not a brag or anything, but it's to, it's to, well, maybe it is kind of a brag, <laughs> but it's, it's kind of a, you know, just showing that people come in to the, to my gym and these guys think that they're leg lockers. And then they go against some of my lower rank guys. They're, they're, very, you know, they outrank these guys by a lot and then they end up getting in a lot of trouble. And I think it is because they have uh, an ego, they have rigidity where they, they feel like I already have, you know, I'm, I already have a system, you know, I, I know exactly what, what I need to do when I'm leg locking with someone and then they get leg locked. And it's like, at that point, you kind of have two options. You know, you can, you can keep doing what you're doing and think that things are going to change, or you can have an open mind, you know, you can have a, a pliable mind where you can think, well, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I should consider a different approach. Maybe a different approach would be smarter for me. Maybe my whole outlook, I'm missing concepts and I'm missing aspects to my game that are really stopping me from getting to the next level. And I've seen this a lot, especially when people visit from other schools. You know, they like I said, they think that they have leg locks. They they have all these systems. And then when they try and leg lock my guys, they just get passed or they don't have they don't have a holistic system. They just they have like a, a catch wrestling style. And it really it really comes down to that decision. Like, are you going to are you going to keep doing exactly what you're doing or are you willing to maybe admit that there's better ways to do things or that there's ways that you're not aware of? Your understanding was not as deep as you thought. And it, I, I think it really comes down to an ego situation. Uh, you know, it's a it's a battle between you and your ego. And to the point that you were making earlier, if you create a situation in your gym, not that you are doing it, but if one creates a situation in one's gym where questions are not allowed and differences of opinion are not allowed, and I'm not talking about the white belt who, you know, who asks, well, what if this happens? What if this happens? What if there's an earthquake? What if, you know, the person's foot falls off? You know, you know those people, but the people who genuinely are just trying to understand conceptually or to get some context... And in the process of doing so, raise some counter arguments. If you're create, if one is creating a situation where that is not allowed, then that's that's sort of the precursor to being a little culty, which I we've talked about having that be dangerous. And and so as I'm listening to you talk, I'm realizing that 
this is now something that I feel like I want to take responsibility for it in, in terms of trying to help students have that open mind and, and really create a situation in my classes where it's okay for people to say, gosh, you know, I thought that I had a leg lock game. I thought I had this, I thought I had that. And I really don't. And to, to make that um, a norm rather than something that surprises people or that people kind of get smug when they see. And it's a, it's an internal thing. So it's something that I need to work at, but I, but I hope that it's also something that we as uh, jujitsu professionals can, can talk about too. Yeah. Yeah. And for those who are listening and are hearing us saying the word culty and are thinking like, oh, well, it can't possibly be that bad. Right. I mean, it's just it's just a matter of ego. It can't possibly really be a culty thing. I mean, I would I would question that. I think that the start of a really bad gym often comes about when there's an instructor who is seen as the dominant authority figure. And at first, yeah, maybe it's just an ego thing. And they just don't accept questions and they have to know everything. Maybe that's how it starts. And maybe for some gyms, that's where it ends. But a lot of gyms can get a lot worse than that. I mean, Val, I don't know if you saw the news, but there is just a a horrendous allegation against Barada right now for what he did to one of his clients. And I mean, you you read the article and maybe calling it an allegation is kind of like a bit of a, a loose word here because it sounds like there's some pretty specific evidence on the matter. And this kind of stuff is not uncommon in jujitsu, unfortunately. This is actually one of the things that I think will hold us back as a sport if we fail to clean it up. There are just a lot of really, really scummy gyms and a lot of really, really scummy practices. And sometimes when we say bad coaching, like that can go beyond the realm of just they have trouble teaching techniques. It can go into the realm of serious unethical behavior. So I kind of look at this matter of coaches who just they don't take questions you know when you see a coach like that for me it's often more than just a missed opportunity to teach but I often look at that as a red flag for a gateway to something worse that could actually be happening yeah crazy about what happened to uh or what he did I should say and the evidence does look really damning I don't know why these why this keeps happening in the jiu-jitsu community it seems to be all these black belts or the you know the the ones that are at the at the higher levels and are really high ranked that are really prone to these behaviors i don't know if it's it's if it's a you know if they feel like it's a power thing for them or if they're just not good people in general uh, it seems to be a, a mixture of of the two but that i mean it's just and the evidence does sound damning you know it's but in this situation, I've, I've heard that there's footage of this. I mean, absolutely a, a disappointing and horrible thing. And I mean, I think Barada's life is pretty much over at this point. I agree with you. I, I wanted to point out that it isn't just high-ranking black belts who do this kind of thing. It happens in darkness and in situations like a gym where there's this perception of camaraderie. If you are a person, and I, I actually have written about this for a couple different places, but I think there's a difference between between being actively part of a solution and kind of staying out of it. And there are many situations, I know of many situations myself among women that I know, who have been victimized by someone at their gym and people turn a blind eye because they don't 
they for a couple reasons they either don't want to rock the boat or they don't know what recourse they have or they don't know what kinds of support they could and should be providing if they want to be one of the one of the good guys and that's a conversation that i think needs to happen too not just oh it's a terrible thing when people are victimized in a gym but here is our plan for shining a light in those dark corners for empowering people to be actively on the side of good and for getting the message out that this is not a place where that kind of thing is tolerated. And as soon as it happens, you're gone. Because if you see someone victimizing someone and then and then there's no uh, recourse for the person who's victimized or that person leaves the gym and then the person who did the victimizing just goes on to their next target then that is a very, very loud and very clear message to someone who might otherwise want to say something. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's something that I have learned as I got to Black Belt is that really the most important thing I think when you get to Black Belt is it's not about skill or technique. It's about understanding that once you wear that Black Belt, you are now an ambassador to the community and your actions reflect on the rest of the community and vice versa, right? The community's actions reflect on you. I mean, what Barada has allegedly done here, it reflects poorly on the three of us, right? And we have nothing to do with the matter, but still we are representatives of this sport. And the problem is if we fail to clean this kind of stuff up and take an aggressive approach towards shining light in the darkness, I mean, not only are we allowing horrendous things to happen, but we're we're stunting the growth of the sport, right? I mean, we had Lachlan Giles on the podcast recently talking about why he feels strongly that the use of performance enhancing drugs is unethical. And one of his big objections is that a lot of people will say, oh, well, everyone's on it or, well, you know, can't people just do what they want or, oh, you know, it's an unwinnable fight. Well, you have to try, right? If you want jujitsu to be taken seriously as a world-class sport, you have to try to clean it up and you have to try to make it legitimate. You can't just wave your hands of the whole thing or turn a blind eye to these problems. You have to actively try to make the world better and to make the sport better. And I do, I mean, I don't obviously have any statistics on how prevalent these kinds of allegations like the Barada situation are in jiu-jitsu, but all I can say is they crop up way too often and especially with very high-ranking people. I mean, Delahiva being a great and shocking example of this. I mean, I'm under Delahiva lineage, which is a very awkward situation for me. I mean, I I've never met the man. I've only heard stories about what a great and wonderful person he is. And then these very credible allegations, in my opinion, were leveled against him. And that has completely changed my relationship, not just to um, this, this figure that I've heard about, but also to the sport. Because, you know, when people ask me my lineage, his name is now attached to that. And that's not something that I'm comfortable with any longer. So it, it is important to understand that when these things happen, it reflects badly on all of us. And especially once you get to black belt, we all have a duty to represent the sport. And that's more than just kind of sitting there quietly and allowing these things to happen. And there's some ways we can do this quietly, right? Like when it comes to coaching, I mean, just mirroring the practices we want to see on the mat. That's a huge thing, right? If we want to just 
shelf our ego and get our students to do the fit the same. The first way to do that and the best way to do that is to mirror that behavior ourselves, right? So if I want to come across as a, a humble coach and make it clear that it is okay for people to ask questions, the best thing to do is for me to mirror that behavior myself and make it okay for students to do that in my gym. And similarly, if you see any unethical behavior, speaking out against it and correcting that behavior is the best way that you can mirror that behavior in your club and in other clubs as well. So I think that's kind of part of the weight that comes with that role that, you know, it's not really advertised. It's not, it's not something that they tell you you're going to have to do when you get to black belt. But I realize more and more now that that is the ultimate responsibility of someone who reaches that level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like being vulnerable with my guys and encouraging questions. And there's really no one in my gym that can't ask a question. And, and I encourage questions to be asked in front of people because I want people to see that challenging the person in a, you know, so-called person in authority, myself being the highest ranked and being the, the business owner, it's like, that's a good thing. It's good to have a culture where that is accepted and encouraged. I mean, there's the saying, there's no such thing as a dumb question. I think that that's not always true. I think there are dumb questions, but to realize that, hey, maybe somebody asked a so-called, what's, what's a dumb question to me or you to that, to the person who asked it, maybe they're, it's their first day and they're just trying to gain more insight. So even those questions, you know, I, I encourage them. The reason I do it is not because I'm trying to say, oh, I, you know, I'm this, um, I'm on such a high, higher level of morality and ethics that I want everyone to have a voice. It's, I literally think it's the most productive way. I think that it, it, uh, it's one of the best philosophies because asking questions and being curious about things and being, maybe, maybe someone is not a very outgoing person or brave person and encouraging people to speak out and maybe break free of that and become more of a, you know, an open person and, and not, not be so scared to talk in front of people. Like these are, these are ways that I think not only is it a more pleasant atmosphere, but it's just more of a productive training atmosphere. I think that, um, you get more accomplished in, a, in an environment like that. Yeah. A uh, lesson I learned actually from Google is the concept of psychological safety, which is a practice of creating an environment where people feel comfortable discussing things that could be perceived as embarrassing, right? And I think this is something that every coach can do immediately to improve the quality of their gym is to make it safe for people to have potentially embarrassing or difficult discussions, right? I mean, an example is if someone a white belt asks a question and you, you know, belittle them and make them feel stupid or you're flippant about it. That's not going to help anyone. It just means that people aren't going to ask questions the next time. What you want to do is take every question seriously and be respectful and try to draw those questions out of your students and make it clear to them that this is a place where it is not just okay, but it is good to openly ask those questions and not to worry about how you're going to be perceived. I love that idea of, of psychological safety, and I like to think that's something that I'm that I'm trying to do already, and that's that's probably a very big part of what makes coaching successful is that you create this situation where um, the person that you're coaching can can kind of tap into their innermost whatever thoughts, feelings, desires, fears. One of the things that I will do when I give seminars that seems to go over well is I'll do 
some technique and this, and you were saying that the, you know, one of the reasons that you have an open, sort of an open model when it comes to questions at your gym is because it's, it's the best way for you. And for me, I can't sit through three hours of technique as no matter how good the technique is. So if I'm, if I'm running a seminar, I'll do maybe an hour of technique. Then I'll do some training with people and try to give them like, you know, I'll train for two or three minutes with them, give them one or two pieces of feedback in the moment. But the thing that, that I consistently get good feedback on is doing sort of a, um, a discussion at the end. So if people want to stay and talk, then they can ask me questions about what my jujitsu experience has been like. I'll often get questions about being smaller, weaker, female, often get questions about what it's like to change gyms and just anything, anything related to kind of, you know, having jujitsu in your life. And I find that it is a really good way to, to show that humility that you were talking about and to, without divulging too much, you know, but, but to, uh, to get people talking about the, the things that they're thinking and feeling in a way that feels safe for them. And I, I love that aspect of it because it's almost like sitting in a seminar class where we don't get as much of an opportunity to do that with our, with our training. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you a related question there, Val. You talked about people asking you questions about a woman's perspective on jujitsu. And I think everyone would agree that one of the problems with jujitsu is that it is a male dominated sport. I mean, honestly, we're probably losing a lot of potential to have, you know, a much greater audience in jujitsu if we could get more women to train. And I think we've already talked about some of the obvious reasons why more women don't train and what we need to do to to fix that. But there's also a degree of a self-fulfilling prophecy to some extent where, you know, when you show up at a gym, if you feel like you're kind of the odd one out and you're different, then what that's going to do is it's going to discourage you from showing up more, right? I mean, and I think that that's probably something that a lot of women who train can relate to, right? I mean, I know women who say that, you know, man, a lot of the days they're the only female on the mats. And if you are uh, someone who has never trained martial arts before and you walk into a gym and it's all men, then unfortunately it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because it sends this psychological signal that, man, like, am I in the right place here? Because this doesn't look like my, you know, this doesn't look like my demographic. And not everyone is comfortable just kind of waltzing into a place like that and finding that welcoming out of the gate. And even if everyone is wonderful, which is often the case, I mean, it does create this unfortunate self-fulfilling prophecy where there aren't women in jujitsu and therefore more women won't do jujitsu and therefore there aren't women in jujitsu. I'm just wondering what you think we can do as coaches to make jujitsu a better place for women and to increase representation. Sure. I I think there are several things. I agree with you a hundred percent. I think jujitsu is a hard sell for many people. There are lots of people who are never going to feel comfortable doing it. One of the things that and I've written about this before too, this was oh, quite a while ago, but I did um, a survey of women who train and asked them how gyms can retain women, how gyms can attract women in the first place, etc. One of the things is making, making it clear, not just um, in terms of your words, but in terms of the environment that you want women there. So I have given the example before of times when I, when I was on my, my walkabout, when I was traveling and training jujitsu, I would go to gyms where they 
just simply did not have a place for me to change. So I would come in, I'd pay my mat fee, I'd look around and go, where should I change? And everybody would go, oh, crap, I don't know where you're going to change. So I would have to wait until all the guys came out of the one changing room. And then I would go in there by myself, be as fast as I could, and then come out and be on the mat so that then when the next wave of guys came in, they had a place to change. So that even if there's a, even if there's um people are telling me welcome we really want you here that environmental message is pretty strong that oh god are you telling me that every time i come here i'm going to either have to come already changed or i'm going to have to displace the entire rest of the class that's not something i feel comfortable doing all the time so one thing is the idea of the of making sure that the environment is truly welcoming Another thing is that I've said this before. I think this is a hundred percent true. There are lots of women who may come to a martial arts gym, to a jujitsu gym in particular, because unfortunately they've been physically victimized. And I think we have so much to learn from someone who is brave enough to go into a situation where she is going to possibly relive some trauma and put herself at the at the mercy of these of these people who are physically larger than she is trying to navigate that and i'm not saying that we put that kind of person on the spot but if there's a way that we can that we can welcome that kind of experience and honor that kind of experience and respect that kind of experience because man are you telling me that person isn't tough well i disagree 100% so if there are ways to have multiple messages about the kinds of people that we need in jujitsu. You know, we need that kind of perspective. We need that kind of bravery and that kind of courage. And then another thing is always, of course, if you do have women who train, then that of course is always helpful in, in getting women to stay. But the other thing that I try to do and that I think is incredibly important nowadays I sort of joke that women's jiu-jitsu 1.0 was getting women on the mat. We still don't have critical numbers of women, but we certainly have significantly more women than we did when I started. And you can tell that that's the case just in terms of the brackets and the, the divisions that are available at the bigger tournaments. When I started competing, it was right after brown and black belts had been separated out from purple belts for adult women. And now you have white, blue, purple, brown, black, and those divisions are stacked. So there are more and more women training, which is wonderful. What I think women's jujitsu 2.0 is, is showing women in positions of leadership on the mat. And I love hearing women who do commentating for different events. Um, I love seeing women do seminars that are for men and women if you come to when class is normally in session at the gym I teach at, if you're a man or a woman and you come to class at X time on X day, well, you're going to get me as an instructor. And so I think there are lots of different things that at different levels that can happen. And one of the big things nowadays I would like to see is the foregrounding of, of women as leaders in jujitsu, not only for women, but for everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, fantastic. And I think you brought up a good point about the level of courage required to step on the mats when you've suffered some sort of trauma 
or really in any situation where you're not kind of the stereotypical jujitsu person. I mean, when I started jujitsu, I was a male in my 20s, right? I mean, I'm like the prime demographic, basically. So it's even for me, of course, I mean, it's it's an intimidating thing. Everyone who's trained remembers how intimidating their first class was. But it's a lot less intimidating for me than it would be if I were someone outside of that. You know, if I am a 60-year-old man or if I am a mother of two or if I am a trauma survivor or if I'm just someone who is really, really overweight. These are very, very courageous things to step on the mat. And we need to make those people feel welcomed and not feel like they're some sort of like exotic anomaly that we're not equipped for. Because you're right, it's it's often not just the way you conduct your class but it's the weird social signals you send to people that basically say, oh, you're not really the mold that we're looking for here. And that, I think that kind of stuff is, you know, luckily, I think we've grown past the point where a lot of the really outright nasty stuff has been swept away. But now it's a matter of how do we, how do we restructure the way that we present this art so that it truly is welcoming for everyone. And it's going to be a lot of those little, smaller, sort of subtle signals that you brought up that I think are the things that we need to focus on. Well, Val, thank you so much for your time. I mean, I don't want to take up too much of your time here, especially because this is the second time we've attempted this, but I thought that was a really, really awesome chat. Before we tie this up, any closing thoughts, any closing suggestions on coaching or any of the other matters we've talked about here today? Well, first of all, thank you so much. I I love talking with you guys. And if it turns out that there are technical difficulties with this go around two, then we can just third time will be the charm. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, but I really do. I, I, I I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. If people are interested in learning more about coaching, the way we've been distinguishing it from athletic coaching, you can go to the international coach federation, which has a website. People can reach out to me. I'm happy to talk with them about some of the strategies that I use. And, and I think that to the point that you're making about making jujitsu more inclusive, I think the more we have conversations, the more we make those intentions known, and the more we share experiences and best practice and and data and research with each other, the better we're going to be able to meet the needs of our individual students instead of trying to do a one-size-fits-all. And that's a process for each of us internally and also as, as a community. Awesome. Awesome. So if people do want to reach out to you, learn more about you, check out your work, how would they find you? They can go to ValerieWorthington.com and it's the, the website is a little bit outdated, but there is a, um, an email form. And if you want to reach out to me, you certainly can. Or if you want to see probably not that funny, self-deprecating commentary on Facebook, I'm there as well. I am a big fan of your Facebook feed personally. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's amusing to me. And since I have to spend the most time with myself, that's, that's sort of the main the main criterion. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming by. And of course, for those of you listening who want to support us, I mean, by the time this episode comes out, it's probably going to be around Christmas time. All we want for Christmas is your Patreon money. So you can go to patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. Again, that's patreon.com slash BJJ mental models. It takes a lot of time and effort and, and money as well to keep the lights on here and to do this product. So if you find it useful, please do help us out there. Again, we, we're not just asking for money for nothing. There is a lot of premium stuff out there that we offer as well, uh, such as access to our Discord community where Matt and I are happy to coach you and chat with you one-on-one if there's anything that you want clarification on from the show. 
Awesome. Well, I guess we can tie this one up. Round two complete. Thank you again, (laughs) Valerie, for coming to join us. You're welcome. Thank you for everyone for listening. Talk to you guys next week. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Valerie. Thank you.